Blog Talk Radio. everybody welcome to the show I got take a guess what I have for you today pack show wall to wall baby um, <clears throat> yesterday was a very fruitful and productive um, prep day if I don't say so myself so I'm gonna give you Trump's one of Trump's funniest moments of all time this story is a little bit old now, but it's absolutely positively worth it. Um, it is fucking hot in this studio. Why does that always happen? The studio is like consistently eight degrees warmer than uh, outside of it. Anyway, um, so we got Trump being Trump, giving us an all-time hilarious moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have uh, Rudy Giuliani went on Fox News and made an ass of himself talking about... Uh, COVID-19, and wait until you hear his brilliant idea. It's, uh, it's special. Then we have, um, I got a bunch of stuff from Fox News today. Uh, Tara Reid, Nancy Pelosi, trying to explain and justify the terrible string of uh, COVID bailout bills that is getting the people Dickie McGee's axe. So it's, it's a jam-packed show, like I said. So prepare yourself. Um, without further ado... If I could figure out how to click on the freaking computer. Um, let's get started. And <clears throat> bear with, because I know you guys have probably heard a thousand, uh, heard this clip a thousand times already, but I, I couldn't not cover it, even though it happened a while ago. So President Trump gave us, um, honestly, one of his funniest moments of all time. This was at a, a COVID press conference. 
This happened a little while ago, but I can't help it. I have to talk about it because every time I watch the clip, I laugh. So this was special. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. Right. And then I see the disinfectant, which knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of lungs. So it would be interesting to check that so that you're going to have to use medical doctors. Right? But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see, but the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's, uh, that's pretty powerful. Now, this is one day after being mocked for that ruthlessly. Here we I go. I'm asking a question sarcastically to reporters like you just to see what would happen. Now, disinfectant for doing this, maybe on the hands, would work. And I was asking a question of the gentleman who was there yesterday, Bill, because when they say that something will last three or four hours or six hours, but if the sun is out, or if they use disinfectant, it goes away less than a minute. Did you hear about this yesterday? But I was asking a sarcastic and a very sarcastic question to the reporters in the room. What is there to say? <laughs> it's like poetry in motion. Um, he went with sarcasm. I was being... Who, me, Bill? What I was saying the other day, bro? That was just sarcasm, bro. You can't sense it. You can't sense it. By the way, he also used that excuse again because yesterday he went on a Twitter rant where he was like, the fake news media should give back their Nobel Peace Prizes. Or they should give back their Nobel Prizes. He didn't say peace, but Nobel Prizes. But he was spelling Nobel, N-O-B-L-E, like noble. And, um, you know, everybody was making fun of him for that. And then he comes back later and he's like, oh, Really? I guess nobody understands sarcasm anymore, huh? <laughs> oh, man. This is like his go-to out now, and it's probably the weakest Trump out I've ever heard. He, what he should have done is, I mean, first of all, he shouldn't have said it, <laughs> but apart from that, what he should have done is said, me? I was just asking questions. We had experts there, and I was just asking questions. And these are maybe questions that some people out there had that I was, I was just uh, throwing it out there and seeing what's going on. He didn't go with that. He went with sarcasm. I was being sarcastic. Dog, you were not being sarcastic. <laughs> that was nowhere near sarcasm. So, um, I mean, there's a lot to say about this. First of all, the reason why this is so funny is because, like, the things that he's bringing up, like the UV light thing killing the virus, and disinfectant killing the virus. It's like, well, yeah, of course, that's true, but those things kill the virus outside of the human body. Like, that's the articles that he was reading, whatever articles they were, um, that's what they would have said. They would have said that, yes, it's hard, the, the virus has a hard time surviving when there's UV light, you know, it dies pretty quickly, um, the disinfectant kills it, but it's so funny because like, honestly, his thought process is like that of a, 
of a middle schooler or an elementary schooler. Like if a third grader or fourth grader said that to you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think like, wow, what a moron. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, this kid is pretty inquisitive. So the kid realizes the, the UV light kills it outside of the body. Um, the disinfectant kills it outside of the body. So why can't we get that in the body somehow? And then that'll kill it. I mean, that's, that, that could work, right? It's like that's a, that's a thought that's reasonable for a kid. But then obviously as you get older and you know that's absurd, <laughs> like what works outside of the body doesn't necessarily work inside the body, that this is not like how medicine functions. But when you give him free reign and when you don't put him on a script, he's going to have moments like this because he's really not that bright. I mean, some people get triggered. You know, a lot of his, his supporters, his voters, his fans get triggered from that. But in all seriousness, you watch this, come on now. Even if you're a big-time Trump fan, you watch that and you think like, oh, yeah, that was – first of all, you know he wasn't being sarcastic. That's obvious. Uh, he could have went with the I'm just asking questions line. But the reason why that's still somewhat embarrassing is because that shouldn't be a question that you ask because obviously it's not the case that if it kills it outside the body, it's going to kill it inside the body. But that's his train of thought. That's his train of thought. I read the articles, and the articles are amazing. I mean, they say that, like, the UV light kills it very quickly, very fast, tremendous. I like how he throws it out there at the beginning. Supposing we hit the body with uh, tremendous. <laughs> Even the way he talks about it, hit the body. Supposing we hit the body with uh, tremendous, uh, tremendous light. <laughs> people were tweeting pictures of, like, people laying in the sunshine with their legs spread so that, like, the light could hit their ass. <laughs> And they're like, this, is this what you want? Do you think this works? So anyway, it's funny. Like the idea that it, it occurred to him for a minute, like, well, I don't know. What if maybe like we, um, we put people in tanning beds and maybe they open their mouth real wide or they spread their ass cheeks. <laughs> put them in a tanning bed. That might kill some of the virus. Maybe open your nose a lot when you go in there. <laughs> uh, so, it, you know, he, was, he thinks about this kind of like a kid, because that's uh, the level of intelligence he's reached. And um, then he was embarrassed because everybody was like, what is wrong? If I'm not mistaken, even Drudge Report turned on him, and they were like, well, come on, bro. Like, what, what are you doing? What are you saying? Um, but the story, it takes an even funnier turn, because um, Lysol and some other disinfecting companies had to release statements, and they were like, please do not ingest this product. <laughs> And um, unfortunately, some people didn't listen because there was um, the number of calls to poison centers, poison control center in, uh, in New York, at least, I think doubled at the day after Trump said this. Now, listen, I read the article and it might be a little bit clickbaity because I think previously there's, there would be like 15 in, in, a, in a day and there were like 30. So it's like okay, is it possible that that increase is just, like, not related to what Trump said? Sure, sure. But, you know, can you say, hey, maybe two or three or four of those people, um, there was some connection with what Trump said? Could be. I don't know. Obviously, we need more evidence on that. We need more detail on that. But um, the fact that Lysol had to release a statement, the fact that, you know, poison control center calls went up, the fact that he thinks like this, I mean, that really does say a lot. It, it is, it, it's a clear moment of like, oh, he's in over his head. See, Trump's 
political talent is basically derived from his raw aggression and his willingness to just kind of say, like, the whole system's BS. And, like, you know, I alone can fix it, and I'm a winner, and I'm going to go after it. I'm going to make America great again. So all of his uh, electoral power was derived from his, like, fake populism, his fake outsider appeal, and his, the fact that he never backs down when the system tries to take him down. But as I've said to you guys before, it's almost like a national crisis is tailor-made to be the worst-case scenario for a president like Trump because he's a bomb thrower, and that was his appeal. But in a crisis, you don't want a bomb thrower. You want, like, somebody who comes across as uh, an expert, a measured person, an adult, and he just doesn't come across that way. So, you know, when you put him out there, his rambling, off-the-cuff, no-filter stuff in rallies when the audience loves him and he's just going – that is something that's politically advantageous. But you put that same guy in a press conference for a pandemic where he's supposed to tell you all the updates and what's going on and what's happening with the medicine and this and that, you get moments like this where it's like, oh, he's totally in over his head, bro. He doesn't know what's going on. He's got no idea. He just read an article about how UV light is good in killing the virus. He's like, maybe we can get it inside the body. Maybe, I mean, I didn't understand. You have disinfectant works tremendously well. There's got to be some sort of way to get the Lysol, the disinfectant, inside the body. <laughs> so um, this moment uh, blew up. It was huge. Everybody was talking about it. This is a rare moment where even many people who would otherwise be Trump supporters turned on him. But I will say this. If you think this is going to, because there were some tweets like, this is, a, this is a turning point in the Trump presidency where people finally realize who he is and what he is. Uh, I think Paul Krugman said that and some others. And uh, my response to that is no. (laughs) Like, yes, some people who wouldn't otherwise dissent dissented on this very narrow issue, but they're going to go right back to the, you know. He's got that solid chunk, man. Just, it is what it is. He's got that 35 to 40% chunk that are just like, yep, ride or die no matter what with him. So, you know, I I don't think that's going to change. I really think he's correct when he says I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it or whatever the hell he said. Um, But, man, this is one of those moments where it's like mask off. I still can't believe how weak his response was. After everybody was making fun of him, he goes with, hello, he was very sarcastic. (laughs) That wasn't sarcasm. Just be like, hey, man, I'm not a doctor, and I was riffing, and I was asking questions because that works outside of the body. I wanted to know if it worked inside the body, so I was asking the experts who were right next to me. That is what he was doing. But that, see, the thing is, if you say that, there's still some level of, like, embarrassment because people are going to go, well, that was the silliest thing you could have asked anyway. So the fact that you thought that is pretty sad. And he didn't want to... He didn't want to, like, even give his opponents a half victory where they could say, like, you shouldn't have asked that in the first place. He didn't want to give them that. So what does he do? It was just sarcasm. I don't understand why everybody's getting mad at me. I'm just asking very sarcastically. I was being very sarcastic, <laughs> which makes absolutely no sense. So anyway, um, it's hilarious. He really does kind of have the mind of a child. And um, clearly it, it's a great unmasking type situation. When you take Trump out of the environment where his political instincts make him thrive, 
the emperor has no clothes. That's crystal clear. Okay. Now, we got somebody who's uh, equally ridiculous. We're going to go with um, Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani went on Fox News to whine and moan about um, Andrew Cuomo and how he's handling the pandemic. And he ended up giving us a beautiful moment here that's just beyond parody. Michael Bloomberg is going to handle the tracing army of tracers in New York. We learned today. That's totally ridiculous. Yeah, but army of tracers. Then we should trace everybody for cancer. Yeah, army of tracers. We should trace everybody for cancer and heart disease and 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 obesity and I mean a lot a lot a lot of things kill you more than more than COVID-19. So we we should be traced for all those things. Well, there are a lot of people possessing a certain degree of risk. What do you even say in response to that? What do you even say? These guys are absurd. I mean, they're hitting, <laughs> they're hitting levels of scientific illiteracy I previous thought, previously thought wasn't possible. Dude, cancer and heart disease and obesity are not contagious. They're not contagious. <laughs> why, would you, why would you track people for that? <laughs> that makes no sense. The whole point is, hey... With COVID, it's a pandemic, it's a virus, it's contagious. You're putting other people at risk when you're in public. So if you do contact tracing, you can quarantine the people who need to be quarantined and everybody else can go out and about and take care of their business. How do you not, like, what you said made absolutely no sense. <laughs> and I also don't think they really understand what contact tracing is. It sounds a lot more nefarious than what it really is. Like, you hear it and you almost think, you know, NSA, CIA, Spying on every move you make. No. Contact tracing, and they did it in South Korea, and it was wildly successful, is if you test positive for the virus, they go, all right, man, give us a list of everybody you've talked to in the past week or two. And the person gives them the list, and then the authorities go to them and say, listen, you got to quarantine for a couple weeks because this person tested positive. You could have the virus and be asymptomatic right now, meaning you're spreading it everywhere. So in order to nip this thing in the bud and in order to stop the viral infection from spreading, we're going to have you quarantine for a little bit now. That's all it is. And by the way, if you do contact tracing, it makes it so that society can go back to normal a hell of a lot sooner. But he's reacting to contact tracing as if it's like something a hell of a lot more nefarious than it is, like increased NSA spying, to which I respond, no, Rudy, that we already have the Patriot Act, and we already have a government that has repeatedly reauthorized the Patriot Act, and we have a Democratic Party that just gave Donald Trump even more spying powers. And by the way, he said bupkis when it came to the actual infringing on civil liberties. See, I'm against the Patriot Act. I'm against the NSA spying. I'm against giving Trump more spy powers, as Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer did. So I actually care about civil liberties. This is not an instance of a violation of civil liberties. This is like basic pandemic preparedness and basic planning in order to make it so that we can get life back to normal ASAP. I, what, I don't know what's funnier and I don't know what's more ridiculous 
But I honestly think it's pretty equal. The thing that Trump said about UV light and disinfectant and we get it inside the body, and then maybe that'll, you know, that'll be tremendous and it'll maybe fix it. <laughs> I don't know what's sillier, that or this. I actually think it's probably tied. Because when you respond to a point about contact tracing during a pandemic, during a virus, and you say, why not do it with cancer? Why not do it with heart disease? Why not do it with obesity? <laughs> How did you think in your mind for even a second, like, I'm going to say this thing, and this is going to come across really well. I really just think he's a moron. I do. And, uh, you know, perhaps we shouldn't be all that surprised because these, these people, Rudy Giuliani, these, you know, notable right-wing politicians who say stuff like this, um, they have a track record of saying ridiculous things and not knowing basic things. You know, I think back to, um, to Mike Huckabee when he was running for president, I believe, in 2008. One of the things he said was, uh, we should replace the Constitution with the Bible and the Ten Commandments. <laughs> what? That's insane. He said it, and he believed it, because he's a hardcore theocrat. But this is the level that we're at. It's like with Rush Limbaugh. He goes on the radio and literally questions the Big Bang, and he says, how do they know? The scientists weren't there to see it. <coughs> Dog, come on, man. This is, it's, it's just sad. Like, it's at the point where I know my job is to come out here right now and poke fun at him and make fun of him. But it's just, I, I almost, I feel bad. I feel bad. This is like I'm punching down because this guy doesn't have two brain cells to rub together. Look, cancer and obesity and heart disease. Why don't we do contact tracing for that? Yeah, I wonder. Could it be because they're not at all contagious and so you don't need contact tracing? Oh, such a moron. Such a moron. It really is unbelievable. Okay, now Fox News is going to weigh in on the newest COVID bill. And they're going to give a response that only Fox News could give. Here we go. Fox News is uh, weighing in on the newest COVID bill. They're calling it Phase 3.5. And um, they're boosting the idea of Mitch McConnell, which is, hey, uh, screw the states. Screw the states. Screw the cities. Let them go bankrupt. We don't really care. So um, Steve Ducey is going to push that theory here. Take a look. Mitch McConnell was just talking about on that uh, radio show, you know, while it may anger the state of New Jersey, the governor here, uh, there are some who say that that is actually a smart thing to do because if you have another half a trillion dollars in stimulus for a lot of states, you know, if a state were to do what some cities are able to do and declare bankruptcy, they could reduce pensions, uh, bond debt, currently off limits to states. However, some cities can do it. Art Lapper looks at that question about whether the states, and there are a particular number that really need it, need it and why. He talked about it last night from the story with Martha. When I listen to the discussion of the states, especially Connecticut, especially Illinois, especially in New Jersey, these states have been so bad in their fiscal uh, controls that they 
they have run out of money, they're in bad shape, people are leaving the states in droves, and then they want the federal government to bail them out? I don't think so. I mean, this is their problem in, in Illinois, Michigan, uh, uh, New York, uh, Connecticut, and New Jersey. These states have had a big problem long before coronavirus came, and coronavirus came along and just popped them, and uh, they don't need to be bailed out. He said they don't need to be bailed out. Um, yes, they do, which is why they're asking for it. And that same criticism that Art Laffer just had about the states, like, oh, they had a lot of pre-existing problems, and this isn't, I mean, what do, you, what do you expect? Do you expect federal government to rush in and save them when there were issues before coronavirus? That argument can absolutely be used against all the corporations that just got bailed out. They had pre-existing problems. They did not have a rainy day fund in case something like this happened. But Art Laffer and all the other conservatives never said that to executives and owners and shareholders and the wealthy and any multinational corporations. In fact, they turned around and said, absolutely, here's the key to the treasury. Go ahead and loot it. So we gave $4.5 trillion, basically all of it going to a corporate bailout at Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary's discretion. He gets to pick who. There's no oversight. And they're totally down with that, fully implementing corporate socialism. They never said, here, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But for the states, they go, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Okay, how many times has Trump said, and he has in these press conferences, you know, they're asking us to do a lot of things that are not in the purview of the federal government. What we need the states to do is you guys have to step up and do more testing and and build more hospitals and and look after your own people. That's what you have to do. So Trump turns around and tells them, you guys got to step up and do your part. The states do that, and then they go, we just need funding for this. And the federal government goes, yeah, no, we're not going to give you any funding. So you tell them to step up, and then they don't have the money, and then you won't help them. Do you realize how ridiculous this is? Because guys... The states don't have their own sovereign currency. The states can't make the money printer go burr. They can't do it. The federal government can, and the federal government has been doing that when it comes to raining money on big banks and financial institutions. But they don't have money for the states? I mean, it really is. It's absurd, and it shows you what their mindset is, and it shows you that this was all a scam. This was Naomi Klein's shock doctrine 101 is what this was. Oh, we have an opportunity now. What's the opportunity? Just give all the corporations the, the key to the treasury and sit back and let them run everything, and we have uh, corporate socialism permanently. They always wanted that, and now they have it, and they have the nerve to turn around and make these bootstrap arguments for states that are actually stepping up to try to help their people during COVID-19. It really is unbelievable. And then I don't know if you heard it. Steve Ducey gave away the game there for a second. And this is something perhaps he wished he, he had back, and he didn't say it, because this was, a, this was a mask off moment. Mask slipped here. Um, he said, oh, well, we shouldn't bail them out because they could just go through bankruptcy because really what they need to do is reduce pensions. Oh, okay. Okay. So use the crisis to screw working people and get, in, get rid of pensions. Got it. That's what it's all about. So, it, you know, if you're keeping score here, the corporate owners and the CEOs and the top 1% and the shareholders, they cannot lose under any circumstance. 
They privatized the profits, and then they socialized the losses. And no matter what, they're running out the back door with all the money. So they can never lose. But when it comes to working people, you don't have to even make a bad decision. You don't have to screw up, and they want to screw you over. They want to reduce the pensions. So I just want everybody to understand here because, you know, there's been this new rebranding exercise on the right, and Republicans have tried to play the role of, like, who us, bro? No, we're, we're, like, pro-worker. We're, like, super populist and stuff, bro. We're going we're gonna to fight for the working people. That's what we do, bro. And then you see the reality in a situation like this where – they have all this bailout money for all the corporations and all the executives and the freaking cruise line industry who pays zero taxes and has indentured servants from other countries working there. All the money in the world for them. But when it comes to, hey, help the states out because they're stepping up for coronavirus and they don't have the funds, they're like, why don't you, how about you just file for bankruptcy? File for bankruptcy and um, reduce pensions because that's what it's all about. That's what they want to do anyway. And listen... Hear me now, quote me later. They will absolutely use the increase that's now happening with the debt and the deficit. They'll use this to turn around and tell people, oh, uh, we have to reduce Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, obviously. Like, oh, oh my God, oh, my God, look at all the debt. Oh, we messed up. Look at the debt. Look at the deficit. Oh, my God, I can't believe. Who spent all this money? Who spent all this money? And where'd it go? Where'd it go? Well, there's only one answer now. Got to reduce Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. This is what they're going to do. This is what the Republicans are going to do. And the Democrats will probably go right along with them, but they'll, you know, try to soften the blow and use more Weasley language. And, but this is what, that's what they're going to do. So in other words, when it, when it comes time, like, oh, let's try to balance the budget here, they will absolutely do it on the backs of regular people. There's no way they'll be like, oh, would you look at that? Why did we give 83% of the tax cuts to the top 1% in 2017? We shouldn't have given the rich that much money. Never, they will never say that. They will never say, oh my goodness, look at this military budget. Well, this is really through the roof, isn't it? We're spending more than the next 10 biggest countries combined. That's absurd. Never. They will always go to the programs that help working people. And here you go. This is an example of it right here. Oh, we're not going to give you any bailout money because some of that money might go towards pensions for regular people, and obviously our position is screw regular people. Well, thank you for showing everybody who you really are. And, um, you know, I would love to see them put that foot forward instead of lying all the time. Go ahead, put that foot forward so that the voters know. Because I think they would make, uh, you know, some different decisions had they known all along. Like, oh, so you're, you're just here to screw me. That's right, they are. Tara Reed. Tara, I should say. I keep calling her Tara. That's a mistake. Tara Reed, um, this, this woman right here, she has made some explosive allegations against um, Joe Biden. Basically, the claim was in 1993, she was sexually assaulted by him, where he kind of came up to her, put her against the wall, and penetrated her with his fingers, 
and said something along the lines of, come on, man, I thought you liked me. And so she has struggled with this for a long time. And early on, when it happened, she only told, like, her, her friends and family. Um, and I don't think she even gave all the details at the time because she wasn't comfortable yet giving all the details. And then as time went by, she slowly gave more details. And now with Joe Biden running for president and, um, you know, basically him, the whole, like, appeal of his campaign, the whole thing he's trying to portray is Trump is so beyond the pale. Trump is so evil. Trump is so bad. Let's go back to normalcy and where, where we could feel proud that we have a moral man leading us. Like, this is his whole shtick. His whole shtick is, this guy's so beyond the pale, he's an aberration. Let's go back to how we normally are, which is good people. Aren't I such a good person? Vote for me. And I think that that, you know, that hypocrisy just drove her nuts. And she's like, I can't, I, I, gotta, I gotta get this out. So early on, she went to, some of these organizations, these new organizations, like Time's Up, Me Too, and, and the whole point of those organizations, you know, it's in the name. It's like, well, all these powerful men have been getting away with being abusers, being assaulters, being evil sexual predators for all this time. We're going to stop it. That's the whole point. That's what they say the point is. And then she goes and tells them the story about Biden. They're like, well, I don't know. Well, see, um, well, the, what the thing is, when you look at the tax filing situation, where the 501c3 something, and then with the, when you look at the numbers, and, and what happened was that I don't know if we are in a position where we can say anything, so we're going to take, you know, new phone, who this? <laughs> they, don't, they gave her a BS excuse, and then they were like, yeah, we're not going to do anything with this. And she was, of course, floored by it. But come to find out, one of the people who's in a leadership position at one of those organizations has ties to the Biden campaign. So really, I mean, guys, it is what it is. It's just a corporate Democrat hack organization portraying itself as some sort of objective, you know, do-gooder organization against sexual assault and harassment. No, it's just a corporate Democrat front group, and they're total hypocrites. Go back and look at what they said about Christine uh, Blasey Ford and how they were on her side against uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and then they totally flip when it comes to Tara Reid. So they're all hacks, and, you know, so quickly these organizations crumbled because they don't believe in anything at all. They're, they're comical. They're absurd. You got, like, Alyssa Milano, who was leading the Me Too movement. Yes, time's up, Me Too, yes! And then the second somebody goes after somebody she likes, <laughs> did I say believe all women? What I meant was that it's a thing with the, I don't know, with the maybe she's a Russian plant, and I don't, where's the evidence? So listen, you should always care about due process, and you should always care about evidence. Always, always, always. There's no excuse to, that's why I was never on board with the whole, and this is something that they literally argue. They would say, believe all women. And it's like, okay, why don't you just like tattoo on yourself, we don't believe in due process, because that's absurd. But the point is, They've immediately flipped on their own standard. They said, believe all women. And then now when it's somebody who's accusing somebody that they like, a corporate Democrat, it's, I thought they had due process and evidence. Right, but you should have said due process and evidence all along. So, but that brings me to the story today.
So come to find out, this leaked. I think it was Ryan Grimm who reported on this, but as soon as Ryan Grimm reported on this, what you're about to see, a bunch of right-wing organizations released it too, like immediately. And so what people are saying is, oh, they were sitting on it until we get closer to the election. They were going to drop the video of Tara Reid's mom called in to Larry King's show in 1993 after this happened and kind of like cryptically talked about it a little bit, alluded to it as big senator did something really bad and my daughter was... So they were going to have an explosive news story to drop right before the election. So the right has already done their oppo research. They got all the information. And Ryan Grimm released this now, released it earlier. And I mean... Joe Biden, on top of being a terrible person and a war criminal and a sexual assaulter, um, he's, a, he's a vulnerable candidate. Like, it, there is so much oppo there. There is so much there there where, you know, if you run an effective campaign, of course you could bury a guy like Joe Biden. So anyway, without further ado, here's Tara Reid's mom calling into Larry King in 1993. After this happened, listen. On this very important topic, our guests are former United States Senator Howard Baker, Richard Allen, former National Security Advisor, and Lois Romano of the Washington Post. San Luis Obispo, California. Hello. Yes, hello. Um, I'm wondering what um, a, a, a staffer uh, would do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's true. Well, yeah, but these are the people who do come to the Lois Romanos, right? The mm-hmm. staff worker who says, I want to let you know about what's going on, either going with my voice or the guy down the hall. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people have a sense of obligation. They feel that this public official should be accountable if it's something They're wrong. whistleblowers to the press. Exactly. <laughs> Now, the corporate Democrat spin machine is in full effect, and they're, you know, they're saying everything you'd expect them to say. Oh, this is too vague. Do we even know if it's her and all that stuff? Okay. So, yes, it's vague, sure. But, you know, you go back and watch that clip over and over, and um, Tara Reid herself say, that's my mom. That's my mom. So, clearly, either something happened at the time, or she was convinced that something happened at the time. I mean, I guess you could argue... She made it up in 1993, but it seems like a lot of trouble to go through to tell your friends and family and to concern people, and then the call happens. It's just to really argue that nothing happened, or at the very least, like, oh, she didn't think anything happened. Clearly she did. So this is, I mean, it's a piece of evidence that at least at the time, you know, what she said came to fruition, came to fruition that she told her friends and family her mom was concerned this call happened it's another piece of evidence apparently she tried to go through some you know proper channels and it didn't work and um over time as i told you more and more of her she released more and more of the details people are trying to use that to poke holes in her story and say oh you said a different thing then now you're saying another thing now and you know Apparently, it's a very common thing that somebody, when they undergo, like, a sexual assault, that they don't want to just come out with all of it immediately. Um, And so it was a gradual process for her. 
they're literally taking things that she wrote in the past out of context and trying to argue, I'm not kidding, that she's a Russian asset. I mean, it's unbelievable the, the lengths to which corporate Democrats are going and neoliberal Democrats are going to try to just dismiss it and act like, like, yeah, there's nothing to see here and it's not even true and whatever. But I don't know. To me, this is a pretty stunning piece of evidence. Um, but here's the thing that is the un- really uncomfortable part of the conversation, because this, you could just say, wow, giant strike against Biden. That hurts his campaign. It shows the kind of person he is. Um, but what's funny is, is this going to change anything? Is this going to change anything? And my response to that is, it's only going to change as much as the Biden people let it change. So in other words, I mean, I guess theoretically it's possible that some people at the top echelons of the Biden campaign flee him over this and they're like, oh, how dare you? Um, Maybe I could see that happening. But let's assume for a second that top people in the campaign don't flee. Um, Joe Biden still, to my knowledge, hasn't been asked about this. I mean, he might be asked about it now, but guys, if there's any lesson of the Trump era, it's that there are no rules anymore. There are no political rules. Did you, like, did you miss everything that happened when Trump got elected? How he was caught on tape saying, I grabbed by the pussy, I don't even wait. And then he just was kind of like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that, but it was locker room talk. Anyway, at the next debate, he shows up. I just spit everywhere. At the next debate, he shows up. He's like, by the way, see all those people in the front row at the debate? They're all uh, Bill Clinton's accusers. So he took an issue that was, you know, against him and he made it a wash politically and something that was viewed as like, oh, my God, Trump's going to drop out now. He was like, good one. And he flipped it right back on them. So Biden always has this out and the corporate Democrats always have this out. And I'm not kidding. I've seen this argument multiple times made on social media. People say, "Okay, but, um, you know, Trump is a serial rapist. So Biden technically, you know, unwanted penetration, that's rape. But Biden's got a lot of raping to do in order to get to the point where he catches up to Trump. So our guy only committed one rape. Trump committed multiple. You tell me, what's better, one rape or multiple? Oh, God. That's where we're at, guys. That's where we're at. I swear to you, I've seen that argument multiple times. So in the Trump era, what the lesson, if people are paying attention, a lesson that they've learned is anytime there's something that could be a big story against you, you swat it aside angrily and you power through, plow forward, and that's it. Eventually, the story goes away. Now, theoretically, it's possible that you could have more pieces of evidence come out over time and, you know, therefore keeps making the story come back. That would definitely uh, be helpful to take down Biden. And, and it would help Tara to get her whole story out there and all the truth out there and, you know, bolster her case even more. But in the Trump era, there are no political rules. And you absolutely, very easily, Biden could just be like, no. People are potentially now learning the power of just going, no. People don't realize how, people didn't realize how strong that was. You go back and look at previous generations of politics where somebody gets caught in something and it's almost always like, okay, there's like a given, a a given moment, an acknowledgement of reality moment. Like, yeah, okay, all right, whatever. No, we live in the ultimate postmodern world now where you can just be like, no, 
Really? But we have the evidence of the mom calling in. No, you don't know that. You don't know that's true. No. And that's what happens. And we move forward like that. So, you know, a lot of people could be distraught over this. I fully understand that. Um, But the flip side of that is the lack of political rules applies to everybody. (laughs) It doesn't just apply to, you know, the people we don't like using the lack of political rules to their advantage. Um, And the left could learn from this if they weren't, you know, total pushovers and naive clowns. Um, And that obviously nobody who are politicians that you and I would like are accused of such terrible things. Um, But my point is in any realm, um, no matter what the argument is that they try to use against you, you'd be like, no, and then just move forward. That's it. You know, that's the new, there are no political rules anymore, but to the extent that there are any, the one is that there are no rules and you just swap things aside. And it's very possible that, um, you know, Biden and his team have learned this and they're just going to, Swap this aside and move forward. But it does, I think, really expose more of who Biden is. And I'm going to go out on a limb here right now and say there are definitely more cases out there. Because when you have these rich, powerful men who do things like this, it's never just one. It's never just one. He didn't just do this to Tara Reid. He absolutely, I'm sure of it, did it to many more women. And it's possible that you know, they will come forward with their stories at one point or another. Um, And listen, maybe you have Republicans sitting on that information as we get closer to the election. And maybe we'll have, um, you know, a a further test of that theory and that mindset. You could just swat everything aside and move forward. And just so everybody understands, the Republicans are typically better at that than the Democrats are. The Republicans are typically better at saying, like, no, I'm going to control the narrative and I don't care what you say. And I'm swatting this aside and I'm moving forward. Um, If you put enough pressure on a Democrat, usually they cave at some point. So uh, we'll see. I think there definitely are more out there, whether or not we'll ever hear from these people or get the evidence or see more on it. I don't know. But, um, you know, this definitely is a piece of evidence in Tara's direction um, where, you know, she she told her friends and family at the time because she was mortified by what happened. And, um, you know, the, the details of it are pretty pretty terrible. And I don't know what else to say about it. I don't know what else to say about it. But Joe Biden is um, not good. He's not good. Okay. All right, let's go to Nancy Pelosi, and then I'll take a break. Nancy Pelosi tried to explain away and justify the terrible string of COVID bailout bills. This clip is something else. So Cuomo says he would have insisted on state funding uh, in the last bill. And now Senator McConnell saying he wants to push the pause button. Uh, Was this a tactical mistake by you and Senator Schumer? Just calm down. Whoa. We will have state and local, and we will have it in a very significant way. Uh, it's no use going on to what might have been. The administration never even wanted to do. Uh, the governors are impatient. I'm a big fan of Governor Cuomo, my own governor. Um, uh, uh, Gavin Newsom is so spectacular, my mayor. 
Mayor Breeze, that state and local have done their jobs magnificently. They should be impatient. Their impatience will help us get right. an even bigger number. And that goes for Republican governors, too. Governor Hogan of Maryland has been spectacular in all of this. So it's many governors, right. many mayors, bipartisan, for us to get the largest amount. I'm sorry that we had to have an intervention because we were going from CARES 1 to CARES 2. The intervention came. We made right. most of it. And so as I say to members, judge it for what it does. Don't criticize it for what it doesn't because we have a plan. No, you don't. You certainly do not have a plan. Just so everybody understands, we're on phase 3.5 of COVID-related bills. Phase 3.5. Um, and the reason why the last one was a point five is because they didn't want to do things that were really important for the people. And so they just say, this isn't even a full thing, bro. This is like a half semi package here. It's not even a real full package, bro. You can't get mad at me for this. I mean, it's not even a full package. What about the next one? The next one, by the time we get to the full package, it'll be great. They've been saying this since phase one, but the next one, the next one. Like, I, uh, sure, in this one, I'm going to give the Republicans everything they want and going to get Dickie McGee's axe for the people, but in the next one is the one that we're going to do the thing with the thing and the, that's going to be great. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh. So, um, listen, Jake Tapper, Tap Jaker, for the first time in his life, asked a decent question, and he said, well, hold on now. You don't, I mean, is, was this a tactical error? You don't, even, you don't even have money for the states in there. And McConnell's telling the states, go bankrupt. We don't care. You don't even have money for the states in this newest 3.5 version of the COVID bills. Is that a tactical error on your part and Schumer's part? So he's asking a serious question like, wait aren't you guys total pushovers and didn't you make a giant error by not pushing for those things? And her response is, I love this, quote, calm down. She's reacting to Jake Tapper like, who's your boss? Who's your daddy? I am. Just calm down, all right? Just calm down, son. What are you doing? So condescending. So condescending. Guys, this goes back to something we've pointed out a million times on this show. It's not that Nancy Pelosi doesn't know how to play hardball with the Republicans. She does know how to play hardball, but she only plays hardball with the left. So that's why, you know, they go after Bernie Sanders and the squad way more viciously than they've ever gone after Republicans. So it's not that, oh, she's just weak. No, she actually agrees with the Republicans on a lot of this stuff. Wherever she's making concessions to the Republicans, she's making concessions because she agrees with the Republicans on said issue. So here you have Tap Jaker, for the first time in his life, asking a decent question from a left perspective, going, well, hold on now. We're in version 3.5 of the bill, and we still don't have bailout funds for states? And you got Mitch McConnell out there saying, yeah, let them go bankrupt? And you didn't get Dickie McGee's axe for them? Isn't that sending the message? Yeah, go bankrupt. You got the states doing most of the heavy lifting when it comes to COVID-19, and they don't have their own sovereign currency. They can't make the money printer go burr. So they need money. They need funds. Didn't you make an error here by not getting the money? Just calm down, Jake. Just calm down. Oh, man, that was terrible. And then the most uh, frustrating part is she says, she actually says it, don't judge this bill on what it doesn't do. Judge it on what it does. By that logic, you can never say, hey, this should have been included. 
which is like the main variety and flavor of criticism that makes sense in this conversation. You see the trick there? <laughs> the trick is, oh, only look at the provisions that were in the bill, and, and so just give me credit for what's in there. You're not allowed to ever criticize for that which is not in the bill. But of course I'm going to criticize for what's not in the bill. That's the whole point of the criticism. The whole point is, oh my God, these are ineffectual, terrible bills at best. At worst, they're corrupt giveaways to corporations and the rich. So guys, we're on version 3.5 of the bill. You know what hasn't been in there at all? We haven't had a mortgage freeze. We haven't had a rent freeze. We haven't had money for the states like they were saying. We haven't had universal basic income or recurring stimulus checks. So according to Nancy Pelosi, www.shh.com, you're not allowed to criticize on the things that didn't make it in the bill. Of course I am, and I'm going to. But see, now the scariest part is this. scariest part is this. Have you heard any of the lefties call her out on this? Now, you could say, all right, well, whatever, give Bernie and Warren and Sherrod Brown and the nominal lefties in the Senate a pass because they're in the Senate. They're not in the House, and Nancy's in the House. Ro Khanna, Tulsi Gabbard, Ilhan Omar, AOC, Rashida Tlaib. Now, to be fair to Ilhan, she has been out there, like, you know, pushing the ideas that I like, UBI, you know, rent freeze. So she's been doing a decent job on that front. But one line they never, ever, ever cross, ever is calling out the Democratic leaders by name and putting pressure on them specifically and saying, what are you doing? Harnessing the will of the people who they have on their side and saying, hey, everybody, I'm rallying the troops now. Call Nancy's office. Call Chuck Schumer's office. Tell them, here are our list of demands for the next bailout bill. We want a UBI. We want a rent freeze. We want a mortgage freeze. We want money for the states. We want universal testing. They don't do it. They don't do it. Because ultimately, the left responds to Pelosi in the same way that Jake Tapper just did right there. He asked a decent question. Tap Jaker said, hey, did you make a tactical error by not getting money for the states? And she goes, just calm down. And then Tap Jaker's, how's it been? Like a little puppy dog. Yes, queen. That's what that is. And then she comes up with a BS line. Don't judge the bill on what it doesn't do. Judge it on what it does. And, you know, apparently all the so-called fire-breathing lefties are like, I think, uh, all right, yeah, sure, but, uh, that's cool. Next, The next bill. They've been saying it's going to be in the next bill since phase one, and we're on phase 3.5, which is phase four what it is fourth bill related to this so you're being played you are being played it would be so easy if, if the democrats actually cared about workers it would be so easy to craft devastating ads that go after mcconnell and trump and the republicans over this because they don't want to give any money to any normal people <laughs> like they just wanted to use this to fully implement corporate socialism and give the rich all the money let them loot the treasury but see the problem is like i said before nancy and all the corporate Democrats, which is the majority of the party, the overwhelming majority of the party, they agree with the Republicans by and large. So they agree with them, so they're not going to attack them on the stuff that they agree with them on. 
So what are you going to attack them on? They don't attack them on Dickie McGee's axe. And then what happens is the Republicans are better liars, so they cut ads calling out Nancy Pelosi, making her look like an out-of-touch elitist, because she is an out-of-touch elitist. And they're better at playing politics. They're better at portraying themselves as populists, as if they're fighting for workers, when they're not fighting for workers at all. So it's a lose-lose. You get nothing for the people. You give the Republicans everything they want, because you secretly agree with it. And then they turn around and hit you in the face and call you an out-of-touch elitist, because you are an out-of-touch elitist. Literally the worst leadership humanly possible. And she has no response except, quote, just calm down. Says quite a bit, doesn't it? Okay. Time to take a break, bitch. Time to take a break, bitch. Guess what, guys? We may have a COVID-19 vaccine. Got some early evidence on that. We're going to talk about that and much, much more. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back.
bitch. All right, I'm back, everybody. I am back. I am back. <clears throat> Do we have a COVID vaccine? We're getting there. We are getting there. So let me give everybody the details on it. Best news we've heard in a long, long time. Okay, here we go. Science Mag has some uh, potential very, very good news for us on the COVID-19 front. So here's what they say. For the first time, one of the many COVID-19 vaccines in development has protected an animal, rhesus macaques, which is hilarious to say those words, from infection by the new coronavirus scientists report. The vaccine, an old-fashioned formulation consisting of a chemically inactivated version of the virus, produced no obvious side effects in the monkeys, and human trials began on the 16th of April. Researchers from Sinovac Biotech, a privately held Beijing-based company, gave two different doses of their COVID-19 vaccine to a total of eight rhesus macaque monkeys. Three weeks later, the group introduced SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, into the monkey's lungs through tubes down their tracheas, and none developed a full-blown infection. The monkeys, given the highest dose of the vaccine, had the best response. Seven days after the animals received the virus, researchers could not detect it in the pharynx or lungs of any of them. Some of the lower-dosed animals had a viral blip, but also appeared to have controlled the infection. The Cinevac team reports in a paper published on the 19th of April on the preprint server BioRxiv. Uh, they continue and they say this, in contrast, Four control animals developed high levels of viral RNA in several body parts and severe pneumonia. The results give us a lot of confidence that the vaccine will work in humans, says Meng Weining, Sinovac Senior Director for Overseas Regulatory Affairs. So um, now before everybody starts throwing a party, you just you have to understand that this is very, very early in the process. And um, there are still many phases that this has to go through before we can say for sure that it will be successful on humans. And um, here are the downsides. They say the numbers simply aren't big enough to be definitive about anything. So this trial didn't have enough uh, even monkeys in it. Um, And then also they caution that Uh, monkeys don't experience the worst COVID-19 symptoms that humans experience. So you could say, I I don't know how relevant that is because they just check the viral levels um, in the monkeys. So symptoms are not symptoms as long as, you know, the virus wasn't in the monkeys who took the vaccine when they were exposed to the virus. I mean, that's, that's a victory, I believe. But they say, you know, for whatever reason, that might uh, influence the, the results in one way or another. And it's not, it's not perfect. Bottom line is it's not perfect. But 
Um, this is apparently an old school way of creating a vaccine. This actually kind of reminds me of those stories that uh, I was reading a year or two ago about how we're getting a lot of, unfortunately, we're getting a lot of um, antibiotic resistant bacteria out there. And one of the things that doctors have done to try to deal with this, because our newer antibiotics are not working, is they're like, I don't know, let's go in the vault and get like some of the, the original antibiotics that we've ever used. And so they go back in the vault and get an old school antibiotic, hoping that it'll kill these new um, bacterial infections. And in some instances, it worked. This kind of reminds me of that because they're explaining how, you know, this is the old school way of doing a vaccine. We've sensed, I guess, I don't know if we've evolved out of it. We've grown out of it. We have better techniques now or whatever it is. I don't know because I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert on this. Um, but they're describing how this is the old school way of doing a vaccine. And this is the thing that has shown the most promise of all of the trials that are ongoing right now. So listen, I mean, like I said, I, I gave you guys the fair warnings. We're not there yet. There needs to be more study. There needs to be higher numbers and all that stuff. Um, but it is possible that this ends up working and that would be gigantic. And by the way, I'm, I'm very, interested in the fact that they said the the monkeys who got the higher dose of the vaccine did better and the monkeys who got the lower dose of the vaccine they had a viral blip is what i think they they called it which means the vaccine kind of worked but there was still a moment where if you infect them there's a little bit of you know the virus replicating in their bodies or whatever but it doesn't get out of control i guess but um, that's interesting because I told you guys my own personal experience where, um, you know, I may have had it. I may have had COVID-19. I, I told you guys I was, you know, started on a Thursday night and then Thursday night was bad. Friday night was the worst. And then I gradually improved as time went by. And after like five days, maybe I was back to normal, but it went from like chills fever, fatigue, and then it like kind of gradually, no hunger, and they're gradually like kind of tapered off. And my, you know, stupid bro science theory is that, listen, I had been taking the strongest precautions imaginable. Like I had only been in public a handful of times in like months. And whenever I did go out in public, I had a mask on. And I, I was, I was like the poster boy of social distancing. And I still maybe got it. And so one of the things that occurred to me that I, you know, I told people again, to be fair, no evidence of this is my bro science theory. But one of the things I thought about was, well, if I was exposed to the virus, I, it is impossible that I got exposed to like a big dose of it. Because the entire time I was, like I said, social distancing and never went out in public. And when I did go out in public, I had a mask on and all that stuff. So it's possible I got like a very, very tiny dose of the virus. And for whatever reason, the symptoms were not that bad because I got such a tiny dose. Now, usually the way viruses work is not like that. Usually it's you either have it or you don't have it. So like if you get the virus, if you hit the certain threshold for the virus to replicate in your body, if you get that much of the virus in you, that's it. You're going to get it just as bad as anybody else, even if somebody's basking in the virus and basking in it for three days straight where they're totally bombarded with it, you and that person will have the same amount of the virus because that's how a virus works. This virus, there's some reason to believe that it, it might be a little bit different in how it acts because you have these like young 
very healthy doctors who are re- were really getting bombarded with the virus a lot, and then many of them passed away. And one of the theories was, if they had just been exposed to a little bit, they would have been fine. They got exposed to a lot of it, and they passed away. So the amount of virus that gets in you is directly related to how sick you get. Now, again, I want to be clear. I'm doing bro science right now. I have no idea if that's the case. Um, If that is the case, it's very strange for how a virus acts because usually, like I said, a virus is like you either have it or you don't have it. It's not like there's really gradations based on how much of the initial virus got into your system. But that was one of my theories is that like, well, if I got it, I couldn't have gotten that much of it because I just was social distancing all the time. So maybe that would explain why my symptoms – you know, ultimately ended up being very mild compared to my, I never even developed the throat um, problems and the coughing. And I was like, that's weird. You know, um, so this also leads me to believe that too, what I just went through here with you guys, because it, the, the monkeys who got a higher dose of the vaccine, you know, fared better. The monkeys who got a lower dose of the vaccine fared worse. So, they had a viral blip. So it's like there appears to be some sort of correlation between, you know, the amount that gets in your body. So I don't know. I, I don't know. Again, like I said, I, I warned everybody up front. I'm just doing bro science for the love of God. Don't like, you know, take all your medical advice from me. Um, but there is, a, there's a lot of stuff about this virus that I think is very, very interesting and very strange. I read something the other day, which we almost covered on the show, but I didn't prep it for you. Um, Apparently, it's giving this, this virus is giving a lot of young people strokes. Very strange. Young people almost never get strokes, very, very rarely. But this virus, for whatever reason, is giving young people strokes. So there's, and, and they just added like six new, um, you know, symptoms of the virus to, to an updated list on it. So I don't know, man. Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff going on with this virus, but... This is potentially good news that I wanted to share with you, and um, we'll see what happens moving forward, but obviously I hope for the best, because it would be lovely to get back to some semblance of normalcy. Okay, Tom Cotton time, Tom Cotton time. I've been getting a lot of play in the show today, these days I should say. Tom Cotton went on Fox Business. This guy's, of course, in the House of Representatives. He's a congressman. And um, he spoke about some concerning legislation that he's proposing here regarding Chinese people. Let's watch. So one of the issues that we've spoken about in the past is this intellectual property theft that has been going on for decades. China, the Chinese Communist Party continues to steal intellectual uh, property. You believe that they are stealing intellectual property right now as we speak. Let's talk a bit about that because the whole world is, is looking for a vaccine. And I wonder, is China trying now to come out of this, trying to save face, look better than the rest of the world, while coming up with a vaccine before the United States? What's happening right now with regards to that kind of science? 
Well, Maria, the Chinese Communist Party has been stealing America's intellectual property for decades, and they're not going to magically stop in the middle of a pandemic. You know, in almost every state in the union, there are active cases against Chinese nationals. In Arkansas, for instance, they're accused of having stolen proprietary genomes of our farmers in East Arkansas. But in the middle of a pandemic, what's the most valuable intellectual property in the world? It's the research that our great laboratories and life science companies are doing on prophylactic drugs, uh, therapeutic drugs, and ultimately a vaccine. So I have little doubt that the Chinese intelligence services are actively trying to steal America's intellectual property as it relates to the virus that they unleashed on the world. Because, of course, they want to be the country that claims credit for finding those drugs or finding a vaccine and then use it as leverage against the rest of the world. So I want to ask you about your three uh, pieces of legislation that you've already put out to, to, to keep China accountable. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But just what you just said, that is why you believe we should not be giving visas to Chinese students who want to study advanced sciences. They want to get into the Gilead Sciences and the Googles of the world to steal that research. Is that right? Yeah, Maria, it's a scandal to me that we have trained so many of the Chinese Communist Party's brightest minds to go back to China to compete for our jobs, to take our business, and ultimately to steal our property and design weapons and other devices that can be used against the American people. So I think we need to take a very hard look at the visas that we give the Chinese nationals to come to the United States to study, especially at the postgraduate level in advanced scientific and technological fields. You know, if Chinese students want to come here and study Shakespeare and the Federalist Papers, that's what they need to learn from America. They don't need to learn quantum computing and artificial intelligence from America. I mean, Shakespeare was not American, so it's weird to throw that in there, but... <laughs> Okay, uh, anyway, I digress from that point. Look, if you want to say to me, Kyle, U.S. manufacturing has been outsourced to China, and that's a scandal because that means our supply lines go to China, and you don't want to be dependent on China in a crisis situation, I would say totally agree. And I think that the true left position has been and always will be that some degree of protectionism is merited because you want to incentivize manufacturing here at home. I always said, I'm not anti-free trade, but I'm in favor of free trade as a matter of necessity. So in other words, whatever we can make here, we should make here. Whatever we need to import from other places, we import from other places and we have trade deals that facilitate that and accommodate that. Um, but unfortunately, the way it works now is the corporations have bought Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. has then allowed corporations to outsource U.S. manufacturing so they could pay basically almost slave labor wages, some terrible wages uh, in sweatshops so that we can, you know, drive prices down, drive um, or drive, I should say, yeah, prices down, drive profits up. So the move has been basically a race to the bottom situation. And. I would 100% agree with, and it's weird because you do have crossover between um, what are called paleoconservatives and the left on this issue. So you have people like Tom Cotton who, for different reasons, for nationalistic reasons, are like, oh, well, we need to have our supply lines, you know, that are here and not outsource everything to China. We agree, but we agree for, obviously, you know, different reasons. I care about 
workers, and I want to make sure workers are doing well. Um, he just cares about, you know, nationalism, and he thinks that we have big, bad, evil enemies all around the world, and that's why we need to be uh, more isolated. Whatever the reason is, as long as we're doing the right thing by workers, okay, I agree on that point. So if you say that to me, totally agree. If you say to me, hey, man, there really is a problem with China stealing uh, intellectual property rights. Yeah, I mean, they, there's a lot of, like, counterfeit knockoff stuff. They'll throw, like, Apple logo on something that's not made by Apple. And then, you know, there's a whole scandal of, like, they're just selling knockoff products. And this isn't, you know, they're, they're violating patent law and all that stuff. Sure. I don't know what jurisdiction we have to do anything about that, you know, it, it, and I don't know if, I don't know if like international courts cover um, intellectual property in the same way that domestic law does. So that's a little bit more of a complex issue, but I would agree to some extent, sure, okay, intellectual property, there's an issue there that needs to be ironed out and handled. Um, here's where he totally loses me. He talks about how, um, well, they, they might, uh, steal a vaccine, and so that would be a problem because then they'd use that as leverage against the rest of the world. Okay, when it comes to something like a vaccine, I don't want to hear Dickie McGee's act about intellectual property or patents, period, because whoever comes up with a vaccine, I don't care who it is, if it's the United States, if it's China, if it's Russia, if it's Cuba, if it's Greenland, whoever, the Bahamas, we need the vaccine. Everybody needs a vaccine. So this isn't, and the funny thing is, I think he's actually doing projection. Really, Tom Cotton, because Trump apparently said this early on, like, oh, German scientists, I think, he was, were working on the vaccine. He's like, when you get it, I want you to sell it to us because I want to only make sure Americans have it. Everybody was like, what are you talking about? And I think that's kind of what's going on in Tom Cotton's head. Tom Cotton definitely thinks, like, I want to use that. We, the United States, should use that as leverage against the rest of the world, because that is something like the U.S. would do. So I don't think he's actually concerned. I mean, maybe he is concerned about China doing that, but I, if China came up with a vaccine, it would be, the whole world would get it. Absolutely. And I hope the case is that if we come up with a vaccine, the whole world gets it. But you never know, because with people like Tom Cotton, he doesn't care about people in other countries. Or he doesn't care about people in this country at all. <laughs> But he definitely cares less about people in other countries. So I don't want to hear anything about like, oh, they might steal a vaccine and then that would violate, uh, you know, uh, patent law and intellectual property. There shouldn't be patent law and intellectual property stuff when it comes to something as important as medicine, which everybody needs. So, you know, I'm not concerned about whether or not Gilead Sciences makes a couple billion dollars off their freaking vaccine. So I, I care about whether or not people get the damn vaccine. So he loses me there. But where he loses me even more is, and, and you heard it, he basically said, don't let Chinese people in the U.S. study advanced science. Because in his mind, we live in a 007 movie, and like every person who comes here from China to study advanced science, they're all spies who are going to use our information and our you know, advanced knowledge against us. Dude, 99.9% .9 of people who come from China and who study here, regardless of what field they're studying, they're regular people. And actually what's more likely is that they're from more wealthy families in China, and those wealthy families are like, I'm going to send you to the United States to study, because they view it as, for whatever reason, oh, prestigious, and you get to go to the great universities or whatever. So, I mean, call it what it is, man. If you're seriously in favor of, like, just 
saying Chinese folks shouldn't study advanced science in the U.S., I mean, what do you want to call that? You're saying we should separate those students out and have rules against them, almost like you are segregating them from everybody else, which is you've gone down a terrible road. And here's how you know what he's saying goes way too far. Just take out Chinese people there and put in Jews. You know, I don't know, man. I don't think these Jews should be allowed to come here and study advanced science because who knows what kind of nefarious things they're going to use that information for. I mean, I, I don't even have to say anything. That, that's self-explanatory how terrible that is and how bigoted that is and how wrong that is. It's the same thing for Chinese people. It's not like, you know, they're all secretly uh, spies working for the Communist Chinese Party. Now, don't get me wrong. If there happen to be the 0.1% that are that, okay, well, do standard investigative police work. You know, make, I'm not saying let spies run amok or whatever. Of course, we have spies, other countries have spies. Do the police work necessary to figure out what's going on and act accordingly. But to have a blanket, broad rule like he just said he's in favor of, of don't let Chinese people study advanced sciences, come on, man. Because also... One of the other downsides of this, on top of that just being bigoted, is that, okay, but what if it's, it's going to be a Chinese person who comes up with the next vaccine, but you just said you're not allowed to come here because of a blanket rule that I implemented, because I think I'm going to treat you all as if you're spies. It's just he's a dunderhead, okay? He's a moron. And um, listen, don't fall for the fake, like, you know, because this is the new tap dance on the right is like, pfft, we're nationalists, and that includes economic nationalism. So we're going to actually fight for the American worker. Don't fall for the, for the tap dance, because almost all these people who are making those arguments now, they all supported all the outsourcing deals. So they're not the real deal, and there are ulterior motives. And a guy like Tom Cotton, this is a guy who's one of the ho- most hawkish neocons that we have. And really, he wants to escalate in a new Cold War and you know, be on be on bad terms with not just China, but Russia and everywhere, because he's a neocon, and this is what he does. This is what he wants. He wants conflict. So don't fall for their, like, little faux populism, I care about the worker spiel, because they don't. They simply don't. And he has nefarious and ulterior motives. This is a guy who has never met a war he didn't like. This is a guy who famously was talking about he was flat out apologizing for torture and saying we should have done more of those techniques at Guantanamo Bay. So he's not a good dude, and I need everybody to keep that in mind. And a lot of what he's saying here goes way beyond the pale. I don't, you shouldn't, the last thing I'd be thinking about is intellectual property and patent rights when it comes to a freaking vaccine. Let's get the vaccine and give it to everybody as quickly as possible. And I, I, it's so beyond the pale to just casually go out there and say something like, oh, don't let Chinese people study advanced science here. Man, uh, it's kind of wild to me that people don't realize in real time just how insane that is. And it probably is going to require, you know, time to get us to that point where people look back and go, wow, that is really not cool that he said those things. Okay. All right, now I will... I will go to Sebastian Gorka. (laughs) Gorka is such a doofy-sounding name. But first, let me open this door and get a little bit of air in here. 
Gets hot in the studio, bruh. Gets really hot. Okay. All right, we're back. So, let's have some fun making fun of Sebastian Gorka. Sebastian Gorka is a well-known Trump sycophant, and um, he has a brilliant theory here as to why the left opposes Trump. Watch. A large part of why he was elected, Boris. Let me add, it's also a large, large part of why the left hates him, isn't it? Oh, sure, of course, because because it's that it's that you know the alpha male. I, I said, you know, it's, the, the left hated it when I tweeted out first week in the White House. The alpha males are back. They can't stand that. In an age where masculinity is deemed to be toxic, in an age where they, they say sex and gender is a function of Fluid. choice. conversations. I mean that seriously. Like what's the point of that? You know, if you want to if you want to figure out why somebody thinks like they do, ask them. Ask them. They'll tell you. They'll give you an honest assessment of why they feel the way they feel and why they believe the things they believe. But they don't want to do it like the whole and and it's technically part of the industry I'm in, you know. I got a microphone. I'm doing a show here, but there's this thing that happens where you just get in the habit of strawmanning everybody who doesn't agree with you and like let me tell you what you believe and why you believe it it's like just ask him if you want to be honest and if you want to be open and if you want to be a serious person but he doesn't want to do that he's in the business of playing for a team and you know his team is the pro-trump team so now everybody who's not in agreement with me everybody who's not pro-trump it's just because They're just, they're against the alpha males. That's why. They're betas. And he's an alpha. And the betas don't like the alpha. And so they're triggered by the alpha. That's it. They're just not alphas themselves. That's why. As if Sebastian Gorka is an alpha. (laughs) As if the doughboy he's talking to, Boris Epstein or whatever his name is, as if that dude's an alpha. As if Trump is an alpha. Listen, you know, Joe Rogan made this point uh, a while ago. But, like, here you have a guy who... You know, obviously, he's in his 70s, 
and he has to dye his hair on the regular. He goes through great pains to, like, cover the balding areas on his head, and he has to do his hair in the very unique Trumpian way that tries to hide it. Um, it, You know, he's a guy who either does tanning or I don't know what's going on there, either he's tanning or foundation or whatever the case is. But, like, caring this much about your appearance if you're a dude is not something typically associated with being alpha and being super masculine. Like, the whole idea of being an alpha and being super masculine is supposed to be, like, it's a grizzled dude, he hasn't shaved in a couple weeks, and he's got, like, dirt under his fingernails because he's been working with tools and fixing cars, and, you know, like, that's typically the idea of an alpha male. Trump is not that. <laughs> he's a little doughboy up there. <laughs> so what are, you, what are you saying? The idea that he's, like, the, this embodiment of all that is masculine. No, and the reason they say that is probably because of how combative he is with the press. But there's two ways of viewing that. Yes, you could view that trait as somewhat alpha, or you could view it as him being a little catty bitch, like a little, you know, like a high schooler who feels always feels slighted by people. He cares way too much about what people think of him, so he's always trying to like control the perception of him that other people have. Like that's that's one of the things that hits me about Trump is that he really has ne- he never got past like the high school phase of of like feeling these strong feelings of inadequacy. So he's always trying to make up for it. And he's always trying to like badger people who don't already respect him and like him and view him positively. It just, it strikes me as a very childish thing, not an alpha male. An alpha male probably actually genuinely doesn't care what, you know, anybody, anybody thinks about them or says about them. And Trump obviously cares deeply about that stuff. But I mean, just put that aside. Even if I grant you, let's say I grant you, okay, Trump's an alpha. Why does it have to be the case that the only reason people don't like him or one of the main reasons people don't like him is because they're not alphas? You know, if you ask me why I don't like him, I'll tell you it has everything to do with policy. Everything to do with policy. Why don't I like him? Because he increased our wars. That's why I don't like him. He said he was going to get us out of the wars, and then he increased the wars. Um, You know, we're bombing seven or eight different countries right now. He increased drone strikes 432%. That's why I don't like him. I don't like him because he's warmongering with Iran. I don't think that's masculine. I think that's criminal. I don't think that's alpha. I think he's just doing the bidding of the neocon deep state, which is pretty beta. Fall in line behind, you know, guys like John Bolton and and Gina Haspel to do their bidding. That's not alpha. But constantly warmongering with Iran and, you know, I could go on and on with all the policies that he's pursued that I think are terrible, like, the, the destroying of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you know, the, doing the bidding of Wall Street and deregulating them further, doing the tax cuts where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. These are the things that I'm against. Uh, the reason I oppose Trump is because of policy. He signed a bill. This is never talked about. As far as I know, I'm the only one that brings this up. And that's not, you know, overreaching or hyperbole on my part. But he signed a bill that was literally the most unpopular bill I've ever seen in my life covering politics. It was a bill that guts your internet privacy rights, and it was either 6% or 9% favorability that it polled. Nobody was in favor of it, and he signed the bill. Why? Because he's doing the bidding of the industry. That's why. So this is why I don't like him. And if you, listen, am I saying there's nobody who doesn't like Trump for stupid reasons? Of course not. I talk about those people all the time. I think they're like hashtag resistance liberals who are against Trump. The reason they're against Trump is because of all of the things that don't matter. Like, 
the fact that he seemingly talks with no filter, the fact that he's not professional. Like, this is why people who are the resistance liberals generally and genuinely hate Trump's Trumpiness. Hate, like, the fact that he doesn't have any civility or decorum. So I think those people are silly. I think they're absurd. But that's certainly not the case that everybody who's against Trump is against Trump for those dumb reasons. Talk to almost anybody on the left, and they will give you hardcore policy reasons why they do not like Trump. How he ran as an establishment outsider, and he's doing the exact opposite. He's serving the establishment at every turn. So, you know, but in order to have these conversations, you have to be willing to have these conversations. You have to be serious. You can't, you know, you can't go out there and view your job as, I'm just going to talk trash about everybody who doesn't already agree with me and accuse the people who don't support Trump of not being alphas. As if, by the way, as if everybody who supports Trump isn't alpha too, seriously. I mean, listen, I've seen the cameras, I've seen the people that go to those rallies. You know, there's been many interviews done where people have conversations with, Emma Viglin did this famously for Rebel Headquarters, TYT. They go to the rallies and they just ask these pro-Trump people questions. You want to say there's some alphas who support Trump? Sure, I'm sure there's some alphas who support absolutely every candidate, but there's also a lot of people who do not fit any definition <laughs> of alpha. So it's just this obsession. Like, funny enough, they accuse the left of being like, you guys are so emotional and you're all about your feelings. That entire back and forth was them all up in their feelings. It's all about how I feel about this certain thing emotionally. It's never, like, substantive. It was like, let me tell you how I feel about how great we are and how bad they are and how Trump's an alpha and everybody who supports Trump is an alpha. Anybody else who's against them, it's just because they're betas. It's just because they're betas. Who watches this and is convinced by it and likes it? I mean, it really is amazing to me that there's a market for this stuff. But apparently there is. So have fun in your protective little safe space where you don't engage any interesting, uh, unique ideas and it's all just a circle jerk of, you know, hearing what you already agree with. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go to Fareed Zakaria. Fareed Zakaria, ooh, wrong graphic over my shoulder, bitch. Fareed Zakaria did an interesting segment on Trump's re-election strategy. So let's take a look at this, and then I'll explain where I think he's right and where I think he's wrong. Welcome to Donald Trump's re-election strategy, where he is both the government and the fiery opposition to that government. Populism has always fundamentally been a protest movement of outsiders railing against a corrupt elite that runs the country. Right-wing populism, additionally, makes a distinction between the real people and the others who tend to be foreigners, immigrants, blacks, Jews, and other minorities. Now, this strategy works well when you're out of government. Once you're inside, though, you face a challenge. Politicians who win elections usually try to broaden their base and unify the nation. But populism depends 
on division and dissatisfaction. In addition, in times of genuine emergency, people sober up. Across the world, many populist parties that frivolously attack the establishment have struggled to make their voices heard. In a pandemic, it turns out, many people want their governments to take an active stance, preferably based on advice from experts. Trump's solution is to play insider and outsider simultaneously. One day he announces a careful plan devised by public health officials that announces a step-by-step process for opening up. The next day he sides with street protesters against governors who are following those very guidelines. It's a complicated dance. You can watch the two Trumps at his press conferences. He begins the session as President Trump, making the day's official pronouncements, reading in a dreary monotone from a script he doesn't appear to have looked at before. And then, from time to time, Donald Trump, the populist icon, suddenly pops up, commenting on his own script. For example, to say, after recommending the use of masks, this is voluntary. I don't think I'm going to be doing it. The Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde routine continues throughout the briefing. As his own health officials take the podium to make some substantive points, Trump will jump in to say something that is at odds with the message they are trying to convey. But Trump seems worried that this dance may not be enough to win him re-election, especially as unemployment mounts. The president has surely noticed that his approval ratings remain roughly where they were before the pandemic, which is astonishing given that crises usually boost presidential approval enormously. So... He has doubled down on the attack strategy against the usual scapegoats, the media and what has become an absurd daily routine, as well as blue state governors, liberal cities, international organizations, and now, of course, most pointedly, China. He's also returning to his favorite target, immigrants. The president's ban on immigrants seeking green cards from coming into the country for 60 days is strange since the U.S. has already largely halted immigration. But it's not really a policy, it is a political symbol, a reminder to Trump's base that they can always count on him. There is, of course, another path. Donald Trump could have used the crisis to rally the nation around a common foe. He could have provided calm, sensible leadership, stayed on message with his own health officials, and fostered unity rather than division. That's the approach of German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who now has a 79% approval rating. It is the strategy of Emmanuel Macron, who has moved up 10 points in his very polarized country. But it turns out that Donald Trump knows only one dance. Call it the populism hustle. And he seems uninterested in learning any other. So uh, there's a lot to say about this. Just as a side note, very quickly, I don't agree with his... uh, his portrayal of populism. Populism is just doing the popular will of the people, period. So I I would say Trump is not a populist. He's a fake populist, but he keeps referring to him as if he's like a genuine populist. But anyway, I digress from that. It's a side point. Let's get into the substance of it. Um, So there's some truth in what he's saying there. And there's always been this like back and forth, this wrestling match in Trump's own mind about, which direction to go in. And he's even voiced it publicly. He's tweeted about it. He said, you know, he used to go at his rallies and say, oh, who thinks we should run in 2020 on make America great again? Who thinks we should run on keep America great? He would go to the rallies and ask the question and see the reaction from the crowd. 
because part of him wants to run again on Make America Great Again, and the other part of him wants to say, no, 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 I already made America Great, so now we're going to run on Keep America Great. I did all this amazing work in four years, and everything's perfect now, so let's run on Keep America Great. So that's kind of what Fareed Zakari is alluding to there, is that there are these there, there are two Trumps, the outsider Trump, who's like, I'm an outsider and I'm taking him on and I'm going to bring it all down. And then there's like the, I, I, I'm Mr. Win, 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 and I never lose Trump. And I've already won. And I am the alpha male, the head guy, the boss who's in control. And I've already accomplished all of my goals. You see, there, there's a conflict there. What is it? Are you the leader and you accomplished all your goals and everything's great? Or does everything suck and you're the outsider and you're still fighting against these evil forces, but you haven't gotten to the promised land yet? So there is that, there is that you know, dichotomy and there is that, that conflict between those two worldviews. However, here's where I disagree with, um, with Fareed Zakaria. It's not a strategy. It's not a strategy. He's not like... He's just going with his instincts. That's it. And the problem for him is his instincts are contradictory on this point, and they will remain contradictory. So he never really will make up his mind whether to go with Keep America Great or Make America Great Again, and that's why he's gone with both. And so it's just however he feels in the moment. If he feels like I'm going to be the, you know, the fake anti-establishment, fake populist outsider, if he feels like that in the moment, he goes with that. You know, the next time, you know, the next day he might feel like, no, 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 I'm the boss man and I've already handled everything and we've already made America great and so we're going to keep it great. Then he goes with that. So what, what Fareed Zakari is missing here is this is not, none of this is planned on Trump's part. None of this is I'm going to try to play both those roles, roles at the same time. It's just, it's always his feeling. It's always his instinct. Now, previously, his instinct has been good politically. But now you're running up against, you're running into contradictory messaging because it's inescapable. Now that he's been president, you're right. He, he can't perpetually be the outsider when you're the guy. You're, you got it. You're in control now. Um, and you could see this mindset as well manifest with how he's going to choose to run against Biden. Um, you know, Part of what his messaging was going to be is, look how great everything is already. This was back before the economy imploded. He could have said, oh, the official unemployment rate is really low, and we created X amount of jobs and all that stuff. Um, That would be an argument that's to the right of Biden. Or he could have done the old, I'm going to go to the left of Biden. I'm going to hit him on NAFTA. I'm going to hit him on the Iraq war. Um, And I'm going to brag about doing the First Step Act, which was criminal justice reform. So he could have went to the left of Biden. And again, my guess is you're going to see Trump try to do both of those things and ultimately be contradictory. Um, And as a general rule with Trump, I think he's better as a politician when his back is against the wall. And I I said it before and I'll say it again. I think that a national crisis is like tailor-made to be a situation he's not good in. Because when you're the when you portray yourself as the bomb throwing outsider and then all of a sudden a crisis hits, 
Frizakari is right that people want like calm expertise and leadership. And Trump is the perpetual, you know, shitster, for lack of a better term. And you don't want a shitster in a crisis. You want that calm, reasonable, strong leadership. And so that doesn't bode well for him. Now, the final point I'll make is, I don't know what's going to happen in this election, particularly, I mean, there's a variety of reasons why I don't know what's going to happen, but he points out, Fried Zakaria points out, oh, well, we're having a crisis, and Trump's approval rating is the same. He did have a little bit of a bump there early on, but he only got to 50-something percent. Um, It wasn't as high as, like, Angela Merkel, like he was saying there. But a crisis usually boosts a president's approval rating until the reality sets in that those problems haven't been fixed. That's why with George W. Bush, he got the post-9-11 bump in approval rating because everybody felt patriotic and you fall in line behind your leader when you get attacked. But after a while, when he did illegal wars and he didn't fix the problems and then the economy tanked, his approval rating was like 28% or 29%. It was a record low. So the question is, when the voting happens, what point will we be at on that spectrum? Are we still going to be at the, at the point where people go, we have a crisis, it's a national emergency, you don't want to switch leadership in the middle of a crisis, um, we got to stay the course, and we got to support our leader. Is that where we are? Or are we at the point where people are like, you know, he hasn't handled this well, he's a mess, and we should probably change leadership to anybody but him. It's going to be one of those two places, and who knows where we'll be at the time of the election. Um, it really could go either way. It absolutely could go either way. But my main disagreement with Fareed Zakaria here is that he's portraying it as if it's like a calculated Trump strategy. It's not a strategy. Trump always, always, always goes with his instincts. And for better or worse, sometimes it's politically advantageous, sometimes it's the opposite. But right now, his instincts have him in a little bit of a pickle because it gives him that contradictory message. Because some days he feels like Mr. Bossman and we've already fixed everything and we're great. And other days he feels like, you know, the establishment is, we, we got to fight the establishment and we got to take him down. So some days he's the pinnacle of the establishment and I'm Mr. Bossman, I control everything. And other days he's the angry outsider who's fighting on behalf of the people is how he portrays himself. So, yeah, um, it's not a strategy. He's all instincts all the time. And um, I think... Fareed is reading in too much to, he's giving him too much credit and too much agency. That's the point. Because a guy who just like he did the other day, ranting about how, you know, the disinfectant, we should be able to get that in the body somehow, the UV light, get it in the body somehow. Like that guy is not calculated. And I think if he thought about it a little harder, he'd realize, yeah, it's not calculated. It's a battle of competing instincts. Next. CNN's resident useless buffoon, Chris Saliza, um, decided to do an entire segment almost begging Michelle Obama to be Biden's, Biden's VP. This is uh, difficult to watch.
Wait, did I mess that up? Did I say Michelle Obama or just Obama? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that over because my brain's not working. CNN's number one clown, Chris Saliza, uh, did an entire segment um, all but begging Michelle Obama to be Joe Biden's VP. This is awkward. Well, Joe Biden was asked a simple question. What did he think about picking Michelle Obama as his running mate? Oh, I'd take her in a heartbeat. She's, uh, she's brilliant. She's, she knows the way around. She is a really fine woman. Okay, so she knows the way around is sort of a weird way to say it. But, yes, Biden would, of course, take Michelle Obama as his VP pick quick, fast, and in a hurry. The truth of the matter is that Biden saying he would love to have Michelle Obama as his running mate is akin to me saying that I would pick Steph Curry, I guess, if I was drafting a pickup basketball team. I mean, come on. It's kind of a no-brainer. No, it's a total no-brainer. And here's why. Biden has pledged that he will pick a woman as his VP. And the former first lady is, well, among the most popular women and people among Democrats and independents in this entire country. Michelle Obama was the most admired woman in America in 2018 and 2019, according to Gallup. Sidebar, her husband, Barack, you may have heard of him as the president, was tied with Donald Trump for most admired man in 2019. Me? I think I finished just out of the top ten. And sidebar. Michelle Obama's memoir, it's called Becoming, sold more than 10 billion copies and is set to become the best-selling memoir of all time. Since leaving the White House, she's founded a nonpartisan group aimed at increasing voter registration, and she made national news in early April when she endorsed Democratic efforts aimed at early voting and vote by mail increases in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. In short, there's just no single person in America that Biden could pick as his VP that would increase his chances of victory more than Michelle Obama. Period. End of debate. So, the real question when it comes to Michelle Obama is not whether Biden would be smart to pick her, but whether she would be willing to actually serve as VP. And all signs still, sorry Democrats, suggest the answer to that question is a resounding no, yes, not. In becoming, Michelle Obama put it bluntly, quote, I'll say it here directly, I have no intention of running for office ever. So why are you talking about it? What's the point of this segment? This is a six-minute segment, by the way. You didn't see all of it. You just saw a little piece of it there. Why are you talking about it, Chris? You just said it yourself in her own words. She's like, yeah, I'm not, I never want to be a politician. I never want to run for office. So what are you doing? Okay, listen. He does two of these segments a week. Of all the things happening right now that you can talk about, this is what you chose to talk about? We got people, we got 26 million people now unemployed because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and crisis. And you chose to do a horse race conversation about somebody who we know is not going to be the pick and doesn't want to be in politics. But this is what you chose to talk about? This is CNN that we're talking about. This was your topic. Still don't have a rent freeze. We still don't have a mortgage freeze. We still don't have a recurring stimulus payment. People didn't, a lot of people didn't get their original stimulus check. We don't have UBI. The states are on the verge of bankruptcy because Congress is not helping them cover the COVID-19 costs that the states are burdened with at the moment. 
Chris, what are you doing, bro? What are you doing? It, it's, this is vapid DC pundit brain. That's what this is. This is like ultimate insider brain rot where, you know, you get the luxury of talking about the horse race aspect of politics and, and just being a vapid know-nothing that says nothing of substance. So I don't understand why you're talking about this. If you admit yourself, there's no, she doesn't want to be president She's or VP. She's not going to be VP. And a lot of the stuff he says there is just stupid. Like he says, um, oh, Michelle Obama would be the best to help him win, period, end of debate. Polls aren't stagnant. Polls are fluid. So right now, the polls might show that, oh, people really like her. But before Hillary jumped into the race in 2015... The poll showed she was massively liked, and then it tanked when she started talking. Because, again, public perception of people is fluid. It's not stagnant. So you can't say, as a matter of fact, like this snapshot in time that we have right now is representative of what could happen in a race. For all we know, by the time an actual election came, if Michelle Obama was the VP, her numbers could tank 20, 30 percentage points. You don't know what you're talking about. But, I mean, the most important point is they don't even bother to talk about any, I watched the whole clip. He doesn't bother to talk about any of her policies. Nothing. Nothing about what she believes. Nothing about her, her policy positions, what a platform would look like, what she would fight for. None of that. So, uh, you know, not that all of you guys didn't already know this. But it really is an eye-opening moment for anybody who was maybe a little too mired in the partisan game. Guys, the, the cult of personality nonsense that happens on the right also happens on the left. You know, people on, on, and maybe I shouldn't say the left, I should say liberals happens among Democrats. But like Democrats usually view themselves as like, us bro, we're the smart people. Like we believe in science and we don't have like absurd beliefs. Like look at these right-wingers and what they said about, you know, the conspiracy theories about Obama not being American. The birtherism. Like, we, we don't believe anything crazy like they believe. They have anti-science beliefs. And then meanwhile, here, uh, on the Democratic side, they all drank the Russiagate Kool-Aid. There's only a handful of people who didn't. And it, that's just as dumb a conspiracy as birtherism. The idea that the President of the United States is a Manchurian candidate for Russia. Absurd. Absolutely absurd. Democrats hook, line, and sinker because they wanted to believe it. And now you have a situation where we're pretending like this would be the best VP pick ever, Michelle Obama, when people don't even know what she believes. Anytime you're this interested in somebody being VP and you don't even know what they believe, you're a clown. You're a fool. It should all be about what they believe and what they'll fight for. That's totally out the window. And it's replaced with a cult of personality. Oh, my God. She's an Obama. We love Obama. And this is another Obama. A female Obama. Yeah. This is what goes on in their mind. It's just so sad that the entire political landscape is just this vapid and vacuous. And there's no there there. There's no substance. And let me tell you something, these people have the luxury to think about politics in the way that Chris Saliza thinks about politics. 
because this is not a life or death situation for him. This does not have the high stakes it really does have in real life for him because he's comfy no matter what. So it's um, it's terrible and it's annoying and it's upsetting. And um, this is the most trusted name in news, speculating about somebody who definitely doesn't want to be VP and will not be VP, and we don't even know anything about what she believes. Wonderful. All right, let me take a quick break just because I need to get a drink, but I will be back very shortly. Stay right there, everybody. I've still got a couple great stories for you. hungry too. Your dog is getting hungry. I will be eating as soon as I'm off air. Because that's how I roll, bitch. Okay. 
<clears throat> let's talk about Trump and how it's going on Twitter for him. President Trump has been very active on Twitter recently. Um, he kind of repeatedly has been uh, shoving his foot in his mouth and, you know, giving his critics plenty of ammo because he's misspelling stuff, like, gratuitously. Uh, one, He actually, I don't know if I've ever heard of him do this before. Maybe he's done it a couple times, but he deleted a tweet because of a typo. One of them, it was, uh, he was talking about, like, I work so hard that sometimes at night, I got to eat a hamburger and a Diet Coke in my room late because I'm, I'm working so hard. But he spelled hamburger, H-A-M-B-E-R-G-E-R. Hamburger, not burger, not B-U-R. Um, so he deleted that one. I guess he uh, caught the spelling mistake quickly and just deleted it. Um, <laughs> the other one was the Nobel Prize tweet. He was talking about... Uh, the fake news media should give back all their Nobel Prizes because they don't deserve them. They're fake news. But he kept spelling Nobel, N-O-B-L-E, like noble. And then afterwards, he, he didn't delete those. And he comes out and he goes, oh, oh, I guess nobody understands sarcasm anymore, huh? <laughs> That's been his go-to out, like with the whole injecting disinfectant and getting UV sunlight in your body. His response to that scandal was like, nobody does a sarcasm, huh? That was very sarcastic. I was asking sarcastic questions. So anyway, he's been very active, but uh, that's actually, none of those things are the particular tweet thread that I want to discuss here. The one that I want to discuss is this one. He said, Fox News just doesn't get what's happening. They're being fed Democratic talking points, and they play them without hesitation or research. They forgot that fake news CNN and MSDNC wouldn't let Fox News participate even a little bit in the poor ratings Democrat debates. Even the radical left do-nothing Democrats laughed at the Fox suggestion. No respect for the people running Fox News, but Fox keeps, keeps on plugging to try and become politically correct. They put Rhino Paul Ryan on their board. They hire debate questions to crooked Hillary, fraud Donna Brazil, and others who are even worse. Chris Wallace is nastier to Republicans than even deface the nation or sleepy eyes. <laughs> That's Chuck Todd, for those of you who don't know. The people who are watching Fox News in record numbers, thank you, President Trump, <laughs> are angry. They want an alternative now. So do I. So the whole, like, oh, we need an alternative, you know, he says that, but interestingly enough, he's, you know, he has given credit in the past. Ah, my foot is itchy, very strange. Somebody look up if that's a side effect of, uh, or symptom of COVID, I hope not. Um, anyway, so he has said recently, like, I like One America News Network, OAN or OANN, I don't know which one they go with, but... The whole idea of One America News Network is we are to the right of Fox News. That's like how they portray themselves. And they're the ones who, you know, when Trump goes to them for questions at his press conferences, they always, you know, throw a softball down the center of the plate, couldn't get an easier question to the point where he's even said, I like these guys. I like these guys a lot. It's a great question that you just asked. So 
uh, you know, I wonder how they feel about the fact that he's like, we need an alternative to Fox, and he didn't plug them in this particular tweet. Again, he's done it in the past. He didn't do it here. I don't know why. He probably just forgot about One American News Network, or maybe he's, you know, realizes that they're relatively small compared to Fox News, so he means like a new alternative. And that was, by the way, part of what people were speculating Trump would do if he lost to Hillary Clinton, which is start, you know, Trump TV, Trump, like a Trump 24-hour news network. Um, obviously, he won, so we'll never know what would happen in that alternate timeline, but clearly he, uh, he's not happy with Fox News. Now, the funny thing is, of course, I mean, Fox News, by and large, is wall-to-wall pro-Trump propaganda. I mean, the whole point of Fox News is to do propaganda for the Republican Party stop. In the same way that MSNBC, their whole point is to do propaganda for the Democratic Party. So with Trump, I mean, he really is just really thin-skinned, where unless you're towing his line 24-7, he's lashing out at you. He's lashing out at you. And that's what he's doing here. Oh, you criticize me even tepidly? I'm going to lash out at you. Now, the funny thing is, guys, what Trump is doing here, even though he's like a whiny little prick, it actually worked. So he's done this stuff in the past, and people who work in news or people who are other politicians in D.C., whether it's Congress people or senators, they live in permanent fear of a Trump tweet that could ruin their careers. I'm not kidding. He, you know, got so powerful, and he won the election, and he's got that 35 to 40% chunk of the country that will never abandon him. So if he comes after you, that's hard, man. A lot of people don't know how to deal with that criticism, that barrage of criticism, and, and they flip out. They don't know what the heck to do. So what they've done historically is bent the knee. That's why you've seen, so, like, there's a whole contingent of the pro-Trump politicians who are, just so sycophantic that it's beyond imagination. And what Trump does is carrots and sticks. He'll turn around and everybody who bends the knee to him sufficiently, he'll endlessly help them. That's why you always see him nonstop, like, new book came out from, you know, whoever, fill in the blank, some news person or some politician. New book, tremendous read, highly recommend you pick it up. And see, what he's doing there is it's the tit-for-tat game. Look, if if you say good things about me and if you pump me up, well, I'm going to bless you and I'll tweet out your book. I'll say a kind word. You know, I'll use my power, my influence, my Twitter feed to make people love you. And so when he says something positive about you, people on Twitter, get, they get a whole flow of positive reaction from the Trump people. And that helps their careers. When he says something negative about you, the opposite happens. So for the longest time, this worked. You had Republican politicians who literally lived in fear of a Trump tweet against them, so they bent the knee and hoped that you know, every now and then I'll say a positive thing about them and it would help their careers. Now, I don't know, and this is what is fascinating to find out. I don't know how it plays out from now. Because you know, when some moments are so absurd that nobody can defend them. Like even Drudge Report turned on Trump for the injecting disinfectant thing and like... So what do you do in a situation where he gets so ridiculous and says so many ridiculous things that, like, you can't defend anymore? And Fox News, even with the tepid criticism, is now getting Trump's full wrath. So 
So does Fox News whip themselves into shape more and fall in line more behind Trump? Or do they stay the course, in which case Trump will keep coming after them? I don't know the answer to that question. But I will say this. To this point, this isn't a strategy from Trump. This is just who Trump is. He's petty, and this is how he does politics. But it's worked. And you will never in a million years see a Democrat do what he does on this front, where like he kind of uses the bully pulpit viciously and effectively. So I wish a Democrat would do it without looking silly, like Trump looks silly when he does it, but I wish a Democrat would do it, but they're not going to do it. But the final point I'll make is this. Isn't it interesting that when you talk about on the Republican side, when you talk about on the right, Trump saying like, oh, Fox News is, you know, they're rhinos and we need somebody to the right of, of Fox News. It's not like, oh, we want people who are more principled, who are better conservative ideologues, who are more, who are bigger believers in the ideology of conservatism. That's not what he's asking for. He just wants a network that is more sycophantic to him. So think about that. The idea of let's have a new, new right-wing network is like we need a network that bends the knee more. We need a network that's more authoritarian and supports the party and Trump even more. That's his case. Now compare that to the left. Compare that to us. When people say we want an alternative to MSNBC, they are not saying, oh, we want a network that's even more sycophantic and falls in line behind the Democratic Party and does more propaganda for them and better propaganda for them. No. People who want something to the left of MSNBC want more principled people, people who are more ideological, people who actually fight for left-wing values and believe in the left-wing values. And that's a big difference that you're seeing, is that, you know, listen, are there principled people on the right? Sure. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think Ron Paul truly believes in libertarianism, and he's got his own network, and he does his own thing. And, you know, give credit if you want there, and it, it is what it is. He's, I guess, the equivalent in terms of actually having an ideology, but I don't know how great the numbers are, and that's not what there's, they're clamoring for now. Now they're clamoring. Trump wants a network to the right of Fox that just is more sycophantic to him, and this is what they stand for, and this is what they believe in, and you do see that more of an independent-minded streak on the left, where on the left, they're like, no, we want people who are going to call out the BS across the board. We want people who are more ideological, and I think that says something about, you know, the right and the left more broadly. Um, but there you have it, the president using the bully pulpit and begging for an even more uh, extreme network that does more propaganda and is more sycophantic to him. Okay, final story of the day. Final story of the day, bitch. Story of the day, bitch. Crystal Ball of the show Rising on the Hill um, took some incoming fire from both liberals and leftists for some comments that she made on her show. Let's take a look at those comments.
Because my view on immigration is not the same as Tucker Carlson's. Let's be clear about that. And I think there are legitimate reasons to criticize his approach in terms of a sort of nativist, xenophobe, all of that. But I also think you have to give him credit. Is there anyone on MSNBC who's critical of Democrats in the way that he's willing to be critical of this president? No. No. I mean, you have to give him credit for that, for being willing to dissent which has real consequences, as we know, yes. on a mainstream network, on a very highly rated show, one that the president watches and listens to. So it's very, like, it's very high stakes in that way. And I just, I think that, you know, for for all the problems with Fox News, which there are many, and it is basically most hours like Republican cheerleading in the way that MSNBC is Democratic Party cheerleading. But um, I don't think there's any voice on MSNBC at this point that is nearly as independent-minded as he is. So there was uh, a bunch of outrage on Twitter over this. Some, you know, relatively decent-sized account tweeted that clip, and uh, there were a bunch of people. There were liberals, but there were also leftists who were, like, you know, against her saying what she said there. And, you know, as far as I could tell, the arguments are like, hey, Tucker Carlson is terrible. Tucker Carlson is bigoted. Tucker Carlson is racist. Um, so for you to say, voice this kind of, uh, tepid support is either purposefully or inadvertently boosting him and you don't want to do such a thing, never give him credit. And, and this is, uh, I, you know, what I saw a lot of is that, that drill tweet where it's like, I take back what I said under no conditions. Do you have to hand it to the group ISIS? And, you know, it's a funny tweet for what it's worth. Um, but I do think that this, this has led to a pretty big split on the left, and it's not just in regards to what Crystal said here, but it's in regards to any time you have strange bedfellows in politics. And I think that the left, in all seriousness, oftentimes when they get angry over stuff like this, I think it's really silly because in that clip, Crystal said, He's a xenophobe, and I don't agree with him when it comes to the issue of immigration and many other issues. And does everybody understand why she said that? Here's why she said that, because he's a xenophobe, and she thinks he's a xenophobe, and she is not with him on those issues. So, see, this is the point that we're at, and it kind of drives me crazy, is that even when she gives the qualification of the statement, people now have given themselves license to just, like, ignore that part, Ignore the part where she said the thing that I want her to say and just focus on the latter part that she said because, oh, my God, isn't Tucker Carlson so evil and anything but full-throated denunciation 100% of the time is agreement or endorsement of him. And I think that's ridiculous. I think that's absurd. And anybody who thinks about this stuff objectively and in a nuanced way, listen, you'd understand quickly, you have any idea how often Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul used to work together? You know, Bernie Sanders worked with Mike Lee, uh, a Republican senator, with a lot of odious beliefs. But he worked with him on ending the genocide in Yemen. Now, if we want to have this same kind of mindset that people were having against Crystal on Twitter, well, then you could look through all of what Mike Lee has said over the years and find stuff that's objectionable and then, like, cancel Bernie and accuse him of being tepidly in agreement with Mike Lee on those things. 
But see, that wouldn't be true. That wouldn't be accurate. Bernie doesn't agree with Mike Lee on those things, which is why he didn't work with Mike Lee on those things. Crystal doesn't agree with Tucker Carlson on the immigration position and the xenophobia, and she literally says, I don't agree with him on the immigration and the xenophobia. And by the way, if you want somebody to call Tucker out at a time when it's necessary to call him out, she's going to do it. She's going to do it. So what are we doing here? What is, what is this conversation that we're really having? Like, the idea that in the case of somebody like Tucker, you're literally never allowed to say, all right, you know what, credit words do. I don't agree with you on all these issues, but here's an issue where I agree with you. You're not allowed to do that? You're not allowed to do that. So Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders can't work together on ending the drug war because Ron Paul, way back in the day, had racist newsletters that were written in his name. Therefore, if Bernie works with him, he agrees with him on the racist newsletter. But that's fundamentally not true. So the only way you can take that position is if you're willing to play pretend and willing to just say, screw you to anybody who ever offers a credit where credit is due take. Guys, I got news for you. Tucker Carlson has repeatedly taken an anti-war position. Now, you could say it's not far enough. It's only in certain instances. And, you know, there are specifics to disagree with him on. Sure, absolutely. But there are times he's taken the anti-war position. He invited John Bolton on his show and berated him for the world to see. You know, there are times he's taken a, a position that's not as bad as other Republicans on trade. For us to say that, for us to point that out, that's called basic honesty. To not tell the truth about those things is disingenuous. To pretend like he says the same things on war as uh, neocon Republicans, I would be lying to you if I said that. Because he doesn't say those things. I'm not allowed to point out an objective fact of reality because you might interpret that as more widespread agreement than I actually have with him? No, no, piss off. And here's the final point on this, and this is what I think is even more important, and a point that people on the left never seem to grasp, the people on the left who disagree. Um, Why is it we're all so concerned about, you know, what I like to call, or what many people have called, a gateway into the right. Because I think that's the real concern about what Crystal's doing here. They think like, oh, the fact that you gave credit where credit is due, but Tucker is overall an odious figure on the political scene and he's a bigot and all these stuff, all these things. The fact that you did that, you're providing people like this alt-right pipeline, this gateway into right-wing beliefs. And therefore, what you're doing is not okay and we're going to attack you as if Crystal's like the enemy or something. And why on earth do people never flip that and think of the opposite dynamic? Do you realize that if you're willing to give credit where credit is due, but also vehemently, strongly disagree and call out when somebody's wrong, that you could actually provide a gateway out of odious right-wing beliefs? So in other words, if somebody who might be, a, let's say somebody who's a Tucker Carlson fan, flat out watches the show every night and all that stuff, tunes in to the show Rising, you know, Sager is a right winger. And so at first they start listening and, oh, I like this guy Sager. He seems to agree with me on all this stuff. And they, you know, follow along with him. And then they hear Crystal, who's on the left, say, hey, man, I don't agree with Tucker. I think he's wrong on all these issues. I think he's pretty xenophobic, but he's right on this, this, and this. Do you not understand that that actually can provide a gateway out of the right wing where somebody goes, oh, okay, that's weird. 
I was told the, the left wing doesn't do nuance. I was told that the left wing just shuns and cancels and, you know, treats things in, in on or off, black or white, yes or no. Well, here you have a nuance take from an intelligent lefty who's saying credit to Tucker on the war position. Great, cool. But then is willing to criticize him on other areas where he's wrong. Well, hold on now. Let me hear out this criticism because I don't think the source is a ridiculous person because they just gave credit where credit is due. So, and then point is, you can have this concept, this dynamic of a gateway out of the right if you're willing to be intellectually honest and give credit where credit is due. No, hell no, I'm not going to give Tucker credit when he's wrong. Like when it comes to immigration, when it comes to bigoted positions, when it comes to terrible things he said, I think in many ways he's a fake populist and he tries to use economic leftism to hook people into a more odious Republican agenda. We can have those conversations, but don't tell me I can't give credit where credit is due if it's freaking due. Because then that would be, you're telling me to lie. You're telling me to be disingenuous. You're telling me to mislead my audience. I'm not going to mislead my audience. I'm going to tell them the truth across the board. And so if that means I say credit where credit is due here, but I vehemently call out and disagree with and argue on another point, so be it. So point is, guys, this approach of like, I want to do full-throated condemnation all the time, that's moronic. That's not the way the world works. And by the way, if you're going to go down that road, okay, well then I hope none of the people who are making those arguments are going to vote for Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a rapist. Joe Biden is a war criminal. Why is it Tucker's position on immigration is so beyond the pale that you can't give credit where credit is due and you can't have a nuanced view, but Joe Biden being a war criminal, that's not beyond the pale? That's not beyond the pale. Why isn't Joe Biden canceled? Why isn't he shunned? He's a sexual assaulter. He penetrated somebody with his fingers against their will, rape. So why is it it's so selective in how the rules are enforced. It's so selective. Certain people never give them any credit under any circumstance ever. Other people not only give them credit, but overlook all the bad things and wrong things they did and act accordingly. See, the rules are not objective. The rules are not fair. The rules are selective, and they're ridiculous. And even to people who are on the left, who were against what Crystal did here, I don't know what to say to you other than you got to kind of grow up a little bit. And the reason why this was very tepid praise is because it's tepid because she doesn't agree with him on the same things that you don't agree with him on. It's really that simple. So, you know, from now on, if people want to be more nuanced and objective and give credit where credit is due, I got news for everybody. You're going to provide a pipeline out of the alt-right. That's what you're going to do. And you're going to turn people who were otherwise wrong about most things, if not everything, you will eventually make them more reasonable and maybe even vote for the right people. Maybe even vote for people who want to make a positive change for good. So, you know, and, and lest people turn around and say, well, you don't know about that dynamic. I do actually, because that's what this show has done. And those are the things I'm most proud of is when I hear from people like, hey, man, I was going down a bad path, whoever they were listening to, whether it's Ben Shapiro or Steven Crowder or, you know, I don't care, you fill in the blank, Tucker Carlson. I've heard many people who went from the furthest fringes of the Internet on the right, like 
where it is terrifying. I've heard from people who have told me directly, you are the reason I am out of that. And one of the reasons why that happens is because I'm willing to be open and honest across the board. And if that means every now and then saying, hey, this person who I disagree with on 80% of stuff made a decent point here, so be it. Because you can't be afraid of what the truth is. You can't be afraid of the truth. Truth is always a defense. And, you know, if you're willing to be that objective, if you're willing to be that nuanced, then you gain a lot of credit in the, in the minds of people who otherwise disagree with you. And you can, over time, have them agree with you. And this is not something that many people on the left, I do think it's fair to categorize the people who were, like, outraged by what Crystal said here. I do think it's fair to call them, like, the overly woke left. And um, I hope they have fun being a permanent edgy subculture as opposed to an emotionally intelligent, serious movement that gets the reins of power and then implements positive change. Okay. All right, guys, I'm done. I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Peace.